theyeshiva.net. Tonight, I'm going to respond to questions that I received. Everybody is welcome to send in any question. You could do it now if you want on a piece of paper, or you could email it to emuna at theyeshiva.net, emuna at theyeshiva.net. Everything is confidential and remains anonymous if you so wish. And uh, this evening... I'm going to respond to a few questions that came in, a few emails, not from one person, but many people ask similar questions, so I'm just putting them together, and I'm going to respond, Be'ezer Hashem, to uh, some of these questions to the best of my ability. I have hundreds of questions waiting, literally hundreds of questions, so I try to group them together into categories to make it a little easier to be able to cover at least uh, some ground. So let me begin this evening with the first question that came in from around five or six people. I'm going to read one. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to read one of them. You'll get the idea of the question. I am a teacher in a yeshiva. I teach 15-year-old boys, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and even 18-year-old. High school, Beis Medrash, Yeshiva Ktana, Yeshiva Gdoila. Many of the boys are open with me, and they ask me the following question. Why do we spend so much time learning Gemara? What is its relevance to our lives? We happen to be learning now Mesechtek Suvis, Perik Naira Hamurasa. And these poor boys want to know why we spend so many hours learning this text. They say most of the scenarios and events will never happen in their lives. Most of it seems completely abstract and impractical. Most Gemaras that they have learned or they will learn speak about scenarios that are really not going to unfold in their lives in the near future, at least they hope it's not going to unfold in their life. And they ask me, they say, Rebbe, why do we learn this for so many hours? I heard the other day, a few weeks ago, you gave a class and you uh, quoted a letter from a boy, a young man learning in Yerushalayim, in a koilal, who wrote to you that he learns eight hours a day about an ox. And he wants to know how learning about an ox will bring him closer to God. Well, that's essentially their question. And frankly, I have to tell you, I'm their teacher. I think I'm a good teacher, but I have no answer. When I was a boy, I had the same question. When I asked it, I was never given an answer. I don't know if it's a question that you're not allowed to ask. I don't know if I am the only one who had this question. I doubt it. Maybe many boys just go along with the system and they find it so... Geschmack, so delightful, so delicious, so beautiful, 
the question doesn't even come up. That's, I guess, wonderful and great. But a bunch of boys in my class, we were having this conversation, and they keep on bringing up this question, and they say, what benefit is there for life? What benefit is there emotionally? What benefit is there psychologically? What benefit is there spiritually? What benefit is there practically? Most of it is not even halacha lamaisa. And we really spend most of the day doing this for years and years. Perhaps you can enlighten me. A boy writes to me, a similar letter, a boy himself, says, I am sick of this curriculum. Everybody thinks I'm successful. I have a good head. I learn a lot and I find it completely irrelevant. I just don't understand it. And then people tell me that this is the purpose of my creation, to learn this. Can anybody explain this to me? Perhaps you can explain it to me. Please don't tell me, just go learn more. And the reason you have questions is because you're not learning enough. And if if you just go back to the Beis HaMedrash, all the questions and all the problems will go away. I've tried that for many, many years. And none of the questions went away. Please, don't answer that answer. It's really a wonderful question. It's an excellent question. I know that this side of the Mechitza may not be perturbed by this question as much as this side of the Mechitza, for obvious reasons. But even this side of the Mechitza, many of the mothers know what your children do all day. And by a woman's shear. I sometimes say over a shtickle gemara, and after four minutes I already see everybody's eyes, you know, giving me that strange look, because it's not relevant to their emotional lives. And I say, I just wanted you to know what some of your boys are doing for seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day for many, many years, so when they come home you can empathize. You can empathize with them. I think it's very important to address this question. To ignore it, is really unfair and unjust. And if we can't respond to this question, woe unto us. So I'm not going to give an exhaustive answer, but I'm going to say a few points that I think can be relevant and meaningful and inspiring. The first thing is, learning learning in Judaism, learning Torah in Judaism, is a central, central theme, as all of the writers bring out and convey. We don't just learn for practical purposes. You need to know what to do. You have to read the manual before you know how to operate the machine. If that would be the case, we would just learn halacha to know how to operate the machine. But that's not what learn. That's not only what learning is in Judaism. The, I once heard from the chief rabbi of former chief rabbi of Britain. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he wanted to bring out how Jews look at learning Torah. And he says he was once in the hospital. He was there for a treatment. He had some illness. And he was there in the hospital and he was uh, lying in his bed. And an older Jew was also in the hospital. And he was walking around in the hallway. The man was walking with a walker. And he was looking into the rooms to see who's there. And when he saw a Jew, he walked in to say hi. So he sees this person with a yarmulke, happened to be the British chief rabbi. So this elderly Jew from London walks into his room. And without saying, oh, chief rabbi, you're here, it's great, we can have a chavrusa together. I'm going to get my gemara. It's so great, we can learn together. 
And he said once he was driving, he had a Rosh Hashiva, he's today in Eitz Yisrael, his name was Reb Nachem, Rabinowitz, a big Talmud Chachem. And uh, there was a traffic jam in London. London has horrible traffic jams. And uh, so his Rosh Hashiva, without skipping a heartbeat, takes out a Gemara and starts learning with him. And soon people are beeping and beeping and beeping, but he was already in a different world. He had to bring him back, bring him back to reality. On Simchas Torah, there's a scene that in other cultures is non-existent. It's really a surreal scene. We take it for granted, but we shouldn't take it for granted. I mean, imagine once a year, all of the senators of the United States and all the congressmen would take out the Constitution of the United States of America and they would dance around Capitol Hill with the Constitution. Yeah, Or all lawyers, when they graduated, they passed the bar, they would take the main texts of their law books and uh, dance around dance around their uh, classrooms with it. Or doctors would do it when they graduated with their medical textbooks. We would not trust these doctors or lawyers or politicians. We would say that they uh, need an examination by other doctors. And yet, that's what we do. <laughs> Once a year, Kalal Yisrael take out our texts of law and we dance and dance and dance and dance, holding on to it. And the answer, of course, is if it would just be a book of laws, a manual of instructions, it wouldn't trigger that type of joy. But as we say each night, the perspective on Torah is that it's life to the Jew. Whereas Rabbi Akiva says in Masechus Brachas, where is it? Samachalav, Brachas 61, it's what water is to the fish, Torah is to the Jewish people. But, but what is it? Obviously, a guide for life, a guide for history, a manual, a blueprint for navigating our journey collectively and individually, a blueprint to suck the marrow out of life and live out our deepest potentials and maximize ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, individually and collectively. That's a general description of Torah. But these boys, this teacher, are asking specifically about the learning of Gemara, and that's why I'm going to go on now to this, to the pr- pr- aspect of learning Gemara. And that is, when a person learns Gemara, we're not just learning a text. It's a text, obviously. We're learning what's called in Svarim, meaning the way God thinks. This is an access, this is a key to Hashem's mind, so to speak. Torah, including Gemara, and in Gemara it's very emphasized because of the unique intellectual rigorousness of it. Every word of it, every line of it is, It's divine wisdom. There's the legendary Mir Rosh Hashiva. Many of the Bachim go to the Mir in Yerushalayim just to learn by him, Rabbi Shariyeli. He has 600 boys who sit in his shir. It's hard to get a seat. So in the opening of the year, of this man, of the semester, he usually gives a speech. I heard one of them and he quoted the words of the Balatanya in chapter 5 of Tanya, where he says, you're learning in Gemara, she'im yitin ru'uvin kach v'shimin kach, hiya psag b'neim kach, afim lo'ihoyo hadover hazeh lo'olam lo'vay al mishpatu tainas atviyaseilu. You're learning if Reuven comes and says this, and Shimon says this, 
this is what the verdict shall be, even though it's a scenario that never happened and never will happen. It never happened. She says, this is Chachmaser Tzernish Lakadish Baruch It's the divine way of thinking. It's the divine logic. It's divine rationale. It's Hashem's will. So he says, when a person learns this, the Tanya says, Hu yichud nifla she'ein yichud kamayu nimtza yichud nifla she'ein yichud kamayu v'loi ka'erkei nimtza klal liyas la'achadim u'miyachadim mamash mekol tzadopina. It's a type of unity that has no parallel in any other experience where a person internalizes and absorbs the divine blueprint, the divine mind, the divine thought. That's number one. And this is true of every svara, every idea, every question, every answer, every proof, every refutation, every response to the refutation, question on it, whether it's the conclusion this way, whether it's rejected, whether it's embraced, every single line of it is a glimpse into the intimate inner working kevayachal of the Rebbeinah Shalaylam's mind and heart, chachmasay uretzaynay, shalakadosh baruch In other words, there's no intimacy with the divine like the intimacy of learning Torah. A, uh, it was once on Shavuos, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was talking about learning Torah. So he gave a beautiful illustration. And he said that a Jewish boy, a, a boy, no, no difference, Jewish, not a little boy or a little girl, they're waiting at home for Tati to come home all day. And Tati finally comes home from work. It's been a long day. And he walks through the door. And right when he walks through the door, that little two or three year old, cute, angelic boy runs over and screams, Tati, Tati, and stretches out both of his hands requesting to be picked up and father picks up his child and they just embrace. And that moment of affection, of closeness, of love is one of the unique, special moments in, in life. It's why we work so hard and raise families and have children. It's one of those special moments of, of, that makes life and the, the challenges of life worth living. So the Jew is working all day, he's stressed, he's overwhelmed, he's entrenched in all of the <coughs> hustling to make ends meet and make a living. And at night he comes home. So he says, naturally, instinctively, what does the little boy do? He says, He said, he opens up Ablad Gemara as he runs into his father's arms and he embraces him and he gets embraced by him. It's the most instinctive essential, natural thing for the Jew who's in touch with his or her true self, true Jewishness, true Jewishness to do. But there's another point I want to make. And the second point I want to make to you who writes this question, all of you who write this question, particularly to these teenage, to the few teenage boys who wrote to me and to their teachers, I never met in my life, I met a lot of people I met a lot of boys in yeshivas, or former yeshiva students, or present yeshiva students. I never ever met a person who disliked, who hated learning. 
Ah, you wrote to me in the letter how much you hate it and you despise it. I guarantee you it's because nobody ever taught you real learning. Sadly, in many institutions, people go through a system and they never really learn. They sit for hours and for years. Now imagine if I would take a a nine-year-old boy and put him in to a university where they teach in Chinese, in Mandarin, and he would sit there for the next ten years, six, seven hours a day, and listen to lectures in Mandarin. For ten years. If you don't say you hate it, then there's something very, of course you hate it. A lot of our boys and girls sit for 10 years and hear Chinese. That's the fact. Another Svada, another Shagasai, another Rambam, another Toysvaz, another Maramshiv, another Marsha. They don't know what hit them. They have no background. Some of them don't know Hebrew. They don't know Aleph Beis. They don't know how to touch a Pasuk Chumash. They don't know a Mishnah. The main thing is, there's a stir between two Rambams and Reb Chaim or Reb Baruch Ber answers the stir. A boy once came to me, I was teaching in a yeshiva, and he asked me a question on a marshal. So from the question, I immediately knew that he's been sitting in a Chinese university for 10 years. So I said, very good. But the question of the marshal is the answer of Toysvus. So let's first understand what Toysvus says in the answer. So what does Toysvus say? I hear from the answer that he didn't even begin to begin to know. Well, Toysvus answers on a question. So what's the question? He didn't understand the question. Toysus' question is the Hanarashi. Pirish Akuntas. What does Rashi say? He didn't understand it. Rashi. Rashi is explaining the Mishnah. What did the Mishnah say? He didn't begin to know what the Mishnah said. Now a kid who's not honest with himself could just cruise through such a system. But anyone who has a little self-respect and self-dignity, at some point he's going to start socially. He's going to get sick. With themselves, what am I doing? Where am I wasting my life? And that's why you have to be, I always tell Bacharim, be honest with yourself. Nothing wrong if you learn Mishnayas. <laughs> learn Mishnayas. A major percent of every page of Gemara is Mishnah. If you know Shisha Sidri Mishnah, you'll know much of Shas. Be honest with what you understand. Learn everything with a structure, with a beginning, with a middle, with an end. Don't take anything for granted. Don't believe anything. Torah, you have to understand. Torah, you have to comprehend. You have to use your mind. That's why it's so important that people shouldn't fool themselves. They deceive themselves for years, and then at some point they wake up in the morning, they know nothing. How could you? There's no seder, there's no system, there's no honesty, there's no integrity, there's no structure. If you do it this way, it's impossible to hate it. I never found anybody who hated it. Why? The geschmack, the richness of it, the beauty of it, the way of thinking, the paradigms, the intellectual integrity, the honesty, the perspectives are very, very delightful and rich. But you need to be honest in your learning. And if you have to go like a turtle, go like a turtle. There's something else a little deeper I want to say. Another point. And that is, 
And it's a profound idea, but it's a very important idea. When you're learning Gemara, you're reading a question, an answer, whatever it is. There are svaris that are being conveyed that seem to be talking about aksuva, or a bull, or a donkey, or a cow, or a carbon, or whatever else you're learning about. And you say, well, it's not relevant to me. But if you could go deeper into this svara, into this logic, and you can dissect it to its skeleton, to its core, you will find that this is not just an idea about this particular scenario. This is an idea that is far more abstract and therefore has implications in every area of life. If you take it even further, you'll be able to see that it's really a spiritual idea. And this spiritual idea has relevance philosophically, theologically, psychologically, emotionally, socially and spiritually. But for this you need real learning. Real, real deep learning. Beishamah and Beishillel argue across dozens and hundreds of machlaikas. If you look at dozens of them, they're arguing about a very abstract idea. What's more important in life? Potentiality or self-actualization? Take a look at Rabbi Yonishia and Rabbi Yonis and throughout Shaz, they argue what's more important? Community or individualism? You take a look at Abaya and Rav Rav Shmuel, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yeshua. These are arguments that deal with fundamental ideas in life and they're manifested in this and this particular area. When you learn Torah like that, suddenly you see there's a Tosefta in Sanhedrin, Peir Gvav, Rokachov always says it, Kol HaTorah Inyan Echot. The whole Torah is one. And every Svara could be you're learning Zvachim, you're learning Suvis, you're learning Amishnim Babakama. Asvana, Akasha, Araya, Mandaoma, and Amayra, Tana. They had a Mahalach, that is Shita Sachayim. Doesn't only deal with this area. You have here a cohesive idea that affects and has ramifications in theology, philosophy, science, psychology, emotion, spirituality, and practical day-to-day life. Some of the Goinim in the last generations were very into this Mahalach, like Rabbi Yosef Engel, <coughs> the Rakachavagon, Reb Chaim Briska was more in this, in every, the Briska Mahalach, in every place to, to excavate the depth of it. And others. But this is something that we have to understand when we learn Torah. It's an extremely powerful and exciting journey, not only intellectually, emotionally too. And there's nothing more, there's a beautiful interpretation of the Vilna Gon. And this is the Vilna Gon says this. He has a commentary on Shia Shirim, on Mishle. Shashirim too, but a Mishle, there's a Mishle, Pasuk and Mishle, I think it's chapter 5 in Proverbs. Your source should be blessed, and you should rejoice with the wife of your youth. Literally it means, your reproductive source should have a bracha, you should be able to reproduce, and you should be happy with your spouse, with your youthful, with the spouse of your youth. The Vilna Gaon explains in his commentary on Mishlei, everything in Mishlei is about wisdom, about Torah. So he says, Yehi mekarcha baruch. 
In Torah, there's two levels. There's what's called nigla, and there's what's called nister. Nigla is the concrete manifestation of Torah dealing with physical reality. Nister is every concept in Torah, just like it talks about a physical reality, it's also addressing a spiritual, metaphysical, psychological reality. Yehi mekar chabaruch. When your source, when you understand the source of the nigla, and it's blessed, usmach me'eshes nu'rocha, then you'll go back to the Torah that you learned in your youth, and you'll have a whole new simcha, a whole new joy in the Torah, because you'll see how the intricacies of every halacha are so powerful because they're consistent with profound cosmic spiritual truths. So you're learning Hilcha Shabbos, we were learning a little while ago. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to select the bad from the good. It's boyer. What are you allowed to do on Shabbos? You're allowed to take the good from the bad. If you're eating a salad and you don't like onions, you can't take out the onions. But if you want the tomatoes, out the avocado, right? You girls know. You take out the tomatoes and you take out the avocado. The boys learn Gemara. I don't know if they know this. But in Simon Shin Yutes, in their Shulchanar Echerachayim, in Hilchah Shabbos, from a short sugi, Mesech Shabbos, you have Allah's Boyer. On Shabbos, you can take the good from the bad, not the bad from the good. At the surface, it's about salads, or cutlery, or bottles of soda, or a chess game, or books, or clothes, whatever you're trying to select on Shabbos. But the truth is, there's a deeper dimension here. What's the deeper dimension? Every person in their life has good and bad. Every person has oichel, and every person has psoilus. Every person has avocados, and every person has onions. You have to decide what's the oichel and what's the psoilus. A whole week, we're busy selecting one from the other. That's part. It's called avodas habirurim. On Shabbos, what do you see on Shabbos? On Shabbos, you focus on the good in your life. This is discussed in Svarim. Etc. There are countless, count, literally countless examples like this. The Shalom writes, it's an extraordinary Shalom. He says that, the Gemara says in Masech the Sukkadav Chavches, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he didn't abandon a big thing or a small thing. What's the big thing? Maisa Merkava. What's Dava Kotten? Havayis da Abaya Virova. The discussions of Abaya and Rava, that's a Dava Kotten. Maisa Merkava, the divine chariot, what's called Primi Satayra Kabbal, and it is Dava God. As the Shalad Yerushayim already asked, the Ritvasan. He says, Since we're Jews do all day learning Avayas, how do you call it? How does the Gemara call it a Dava Cotton? It's a small thing. So the Shalah gives an extraordinary interpretation. And he says, and today we can appreciate it even more than in the 17th and 16th century, the age of the Shalah, Rabbeinu Yeshaya Horowitz, who lived in Frankfurt and Prague and in Yerushalayim. He says, you look up to the sky and you see a tiny little star. It's tiny, tiny. <laughs> Near it, you see another star. It looks like it's five, ten feet away. One star, another star is ten feet away. He says, if you would have the proper instruments, you would know that some of these stars are not only larger than the entire planet Earth, they're larger than the moon. And some of these stars, as we know today, are billions of light years away. But from our perspective, our tools, they look tiny. 
Zagdi Gemara, Dover, Cotton, Avayas, Avayas, the Bible of a Dover, Gadol, Maisa, Mekov. It's not two separate things. It's the same thing. What down here looks like a Dover, Cotton, if you would see it from the perspective of Maisa, Mekov, you would see that it's a Gadol. You would see that it's infinite. From one little seed, he says, grows an entire tree. The seed is nothing. A Dover, Cotton, throw it in the garbage. No. If you see microscopically, if you could look and see what's in the seed, if you could see it from the perspective of Maisim Merkava, from the divine, holistic perspective on the world, that's true about every single halacha, every svara, every mandama, every mishnah, every shtikl gemara. Very few things as exciting like this in, in life, but for this you shouldn't close yourself up to any part of Torah. We sometimes present and teach very narrow Judaism. Open yourself up to the infinity of all dimensions, all dimensions of Torah. There's something else about Gemara, and that is, it teaches you how to think. (laughs) It teaches you how to think. People who really learn Gemara, they learn how to think, and they learn how to think like a Jew should think, like, like God thinks. It refines your mind, not only intellectually, but also emotionally and spiritually. But there's a fifth thing, and this is, I think, what I want to uh, leave you with. And that is, when you open up a Gemara, you learn Gemara, at least so I feel, and I think everybody's capable of feeling it, I suddenly become part of a living organism of history that dates back thousands of years. The Gemara quotes a Pasuk Chumash. Parshas Mishpatim, Parshas Emer, Parshas Boy, whatever it is. Parshas Vayakil, Melechis Machsheves Asrotor. A Pasuk Chumash was written by Moshe Rabbeinu 3,300 years ago. Then I'm learning a Mishnah that quoted this Pasuk that was written by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi who lived in the second century after the common era. Moshe Rabbeinu is, in the, in the, Moshe Rabbeinu is 1313, in a, in a Jewish calendar, 2448 since creation, is the year of Matan Tari, Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, 2488 is the 40th year when they go into Eretz Yisrael. And 1500 years later, I'm reading a Mishnah that Yehuda Hanasi wrote. And in the Mishnah he quotes, Beishamah and Beishilol, who lived a hundred or two hundred years before him, a century before the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. He's quoting Reb Gamliel or Reb Yeshua, who lived a century or half a century before him. Suddenly, in in middle of this conversation, I have Moshe, I have Beishamah, I have Beishilol, I have Reb Gamliel, Abaye Rava walk in from the fifth century after the Common Era, and they give their opinion and their input. They, of course, argue. And then comes Rashi and explains, and Toysvis and asks, and Marsha answers, and Maram answers, and Maram Shif makes a horror. Suddenly I open up a Rashi, and Rashi is 11th century. Toysvis, 12th century. I open up a Rambam, the 1100s, a Ramban, a Rashba, the next century, a Rabbeinu Nisim. I'm reading a text... And thousands of years of Jewish life 
are all present with me. I'm not talking to people sitting in the room only. I'm having a live conversation with Rabashi. I'm having a live conversation with Rashi. I'm having a living conversation with the Rambam, with Abaya, with Beishila, with Rabbi Akiva. People who are not here for thousands of years. I'm talking, I'm trying to understand, I'm inquiring, I'm asking, I'm questioning, I'm getting frustrated, I'm getting excited. Suddenly, 3,000 years of history, people are present in a room, alive and well, schmoozing with each other. Where else do you have that in the world? Rabbi Shapiro once said, he says, you open up a... The one who, who the Lublin Erov, founder of Yeshivas Chachmi Lublin and Dafayoimi, he once said, you open up a Gemara, Talmud Bavli. He says, look what you have. You have here geographically, you have the planet, Akibutz Goliath. He says, on the page you have the Mishnah that was Eretz Yisrael. Then you have the Gemara was written in Bavl in Iraq. Then you have Rashi on the left side, on the right side, and that was written in France. And then you have Toysvis on the other side was written in France or in Germany or in England. You have Rabbeinu Hananel, North Africa. You have the Agoyis Habach, Krakow, Poland. You have Agoyis Agro, Lithuania. You go to the back, you have the Marsha, the Rav of Chelem. You have the <coughs> Rashash from Vilna. You have the Ran from Spain, Rabbeinu Nisim. You have the Ramban and the Rajba and the Ritva, Spanish jury. You have the Rif from Morocco. And if you have Art Scroll, you have America. And if you have Oiz Vahadim Asifta, then you have Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> and suddenly here you have the illustration of what the Gemara tells the story of Masechta Avedezara, Daf Yudches, Reb Chanina ben Tradium was being burnt alive. And as he was being burnt alive with a Sefer Torah, his student said, what do you see? And he said, I see Gvilin Israfin, Vaisis Parches, the parchment being burnt and the letters soaring. The letters are soaring. And what happened to these letters? They didn't disappear. They were transplanted in every community, in every city, in every shtetl where Jews lived since the days of Hanunah ben Tradian till this day when you open up a Gemara, you open up a Mishnais, you open up a Rambam, you open up a Shulchan Aruch, you open up a Rishon and Acherin, and you walk with it and you learn it. And suddenly you're in a living conversation with the Kesef Mishnah, and with the Raivad, with the Lechem Mishnah, and with the Maram Shif, with Rashi, and with Toysvis, with Agamor, and with a Mishnah, and everybody is there talking to you, challenging you, and you're challenging them. And Jewish eternity is being created right here. But when teachers teach Gemara, they have to give this feeling to their students. They have to convey it. They have to embody it. The, the, the fortune, the extraordinary experience of continuing this legacy, of continuing, continuing this chain. Okay, I think this is at least a few ideas to think about of the value of learning Gemara. I should just say that I believe that many yeshivas do have to expand their curriculum because I don't think today Judaism should be one-dimensional. Yiddishkeit is so infinitely large, it is so vast, it is so rich, why is it that so many graduates of yeshiva come out knowing, so having such a narrow understanding of Yiddishkeit? And it takes them sometimes years and years and years to even uncover various layers of depth. There is so much, and I don't think it has to take away much from learning Gemara, but there's a lot of time, and I believe boys, girls, should be exposed to the full spectrum, the rainbow 
the rainbow of Torah that gives us tools to be able to live as Jews without the totality of ourselves. Not just, some kids are gifted with IQs and they're good with acrobatic, intellectual, uh, what's called, you know, some good people are athletes, they're good with, ah, ac- huh? what? Acrobatic stunts, acrobatic intellectual exercises. You're not good at it? Hushalungamara? Yeah, okay. Arucha Mayaretz Mida or Rechavaminiyam. Okay. I'm going now to the next question. Can you help me out with a matter that I feel is real Pikuach Nefesh, at least spiritually speaking? I teach, another teacher. Most of my boys are 14 through 17, some 18. Many are completely not motivated towards anything. They have a negativity towards learning and towards life in general. The yeshiva officially caters for these boys, but they don't seem to be fulfilled in any way. I hear you talk about in your classes, living every day to the fullest with your body, your heart, your soul, your mind. They don't live any day to the fullest. They're completely uninterested in learning Gemara or any matter in yeshiva. They lack all of enthusiasm. Some of them are simply depressed, empty, full of anxiety, and they feel like they're wasting their lives. How do I save these boys from depression, emptiness, anxiety, and wasting their lives? The only reason they're in yeshiva is because they want to do what their parents want them to do, so they're just fulfilling their parents' wishes. They're not rebellious boys. They even sometimes want to learn, and deep down they want to give their parents nachas. But in reality, I watch them. They sit year after year through elementary school, and then high school yeshiva ktana, then yeshiva gdoyla, they go to Eretz Yisrael for a few years, everybody says they're steiging, they are empty. They schmooze, schmooze, schmooze between cigarettes all day long. Davening is also dry. The only one singing by davening is some of the teachers in the Anhala. Otherwise it's dead. I am not the Rosh Hashiva, I can't change the curriculum, I can't change the syllabus, I can't change the Masech to the tractate. I spoke to the dean, to the head, the Rosh Hashiva. He tells me if we would change anything, we wouldn't be considered a yeshiva and the good boys would not come. There's a pressure, what's called a yeshiva. Yeshiva has to have a certain look, a certain curriculum. If I change anything, is, is I'm going to destroy my reputation and it's not going to happen. Which means, Rabbi Jacobson, we're not really thinking about the boys. We're only thinking about the image of our yeshiva. And when I speak to the boys, they say, yeah, we want a real yeshiva. We want a proper yeshiva. We don't want a yeshiva for those who didn't make it in the system. We want the real one. I cannot sit idle watching precious souls do nothing all day without an iota of inspiration or emotional growth. How am I supposed to handle this? Well, in addition to what I said above, which I think is very relevant, since this question is more expansive, I'm going to add a few things. And I know maybe it's going to sound a little strange, but I think it's a good idea. I think, I'm talking to this teacher, but I'm talking to all of us. I think when you teach five or ten minutes before class is over, every day, throw in something. Throw in an insight, a thought, a feeling, an experience, a story, a seed that contains some inspiration for life. 
It may not be part of the, the curriculum and the test, but put it in. Number two, I would suggest to you, make Malava Malkus for them. From time to time, every week, every month, a few times a month, Metzai Shabbos or another, make them a love of Malka. Pizza, fries, sushi, not formal, not official. Invite them over and talk to them about real life. Address your own struggles. Talk about your own journeys. Talk about your own experiences as a person, as a Jew. And listen to their experiences. This way you're going to connect deeply. Once a week, carve out 60 or 90 minutes in your classroom to have an open discussion with the boys about their lives. Ask them, if you were in charge in this yeshiva, if you built an institution, how would you do it? What type of schedule would you create? What curriculum would you create? How would you run it? How would you advise your children, when you have children, not only to survive in yeshiva, but to thrive? Let them brainstorm. Make them leaders. Let them share ideas. Hear what they have to say about their own lives. Hear what they have to say about, about their future. Let them share their anger. Let them share their resentment. Let them share their questions. Let them share their fear. Let them share how they feel about themselves. And tell them before you're not going to judge them. And what they share with you is not going to the principal, is not affecting next year's yeshiva, is not affecting shaduchim, is not going back to their parents. You really have to be able to have them trust you with their truth. But see what is happening in their mind and in heart, and maybe you'll be able to implement some things based on what they tell you in the classroom. Some 17-year-old kids are brilliant. Most of them are. Another thing I would tell you is, number four, try to create an individual relationship with each boy. Maybe every day take one and spend with him six minutes, ten minutes, five minutes. Shmu is with him. Talk with him, talk with him about learning, talk with him about life. Once a week, I want to suggest something to you. If you have a teacher that is inspiring to you, today everything is available, bring in a video to the class and watch with them an hour, a half an hour, 40 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour and a half of that sheer of that particular teacher, wherever he is, that inspires you. And then talk to them about it. Your Rosh Hashiva won't mind, you're not destroying a curriculum, you're not destroying a syllabus, you're not changing, you're not changing my seberatius, but if it's inspiring to you, do it with them. And it could be anybody, I'm not suggesting you should take my videos from the yeshiva.net if you want, I don't mind, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna be upset, I'll be very happy. But some, somebody, that speaks to you and you think will speak to them and then let them share their feelings. Every day in the middle of class, somewhere, share something about life. Tell them something about the world of animals, about trees, about snowflakes, about galaxies, about stars, about the human body, about how we digest food, about how we dismiss food. Talk to them about real life. Show them the beauty of life and how Yiddishkeit speaks and addresses the depth of living experience. You can do this constantly the more you educate yourself. Whenever possible, in any shtikl gemara you're learning, or chumash you're learning, or mishnayis you're learning, or halacha you're learning, put in something from machshava. Every halacha has an element of hashkafa in it, of nister in it. Yehi mekarcha baruch usmach meishes neurecha. 
Put in something. Put in a seed. It could be from Musa, from Achshava, from Chassidus. <coughs> and when you speak about it, don't only present Yiddishkeit as a system of rewards and punishments. That's important. But also talk to them about who they are, how God believes in them, their infinite potentials, how successful they can be, how happy Hashem and Yiddishkeit wants them to be. Whenever a Gemara can be applied to practical situations, focus on it. Maybe make two teams, play it out, discuss what would happen in court. You mentioned to me that you learned, you were learning about Bakama Eishe Mishum Chitzav. You're liable for creating a fire that travels like an arrow. Eishe Mishum Chitzav, Eishe Mishum Amayna, Babakama Chavbez. Why don't you talk about a person who creates a virus in one computer and through the internet has the virus traveling through many computers? What would the halacha ask the boys? Let them make a court case about it. Is this the definition of Aish? What are the practical ramifications of halacha? Let it come to life to the real world. Maybe once a week or once a month, have a kumzitz with them, a fabrengu with them, a iswadus with them. Maybe somebody could play, could play a musical instrument so those who like music can express their talents, their creativity. You'll sing together, you'll bond together. That's another idea. I just want to tell you one thing. And that is, save one soul. And if you can't save one soul, save a half a soul. If you can't save a half a soul, save a quarter of a person's soul. One boy at a time, one neshama at a time, one brick at a time. Don't become overwhelmed. But if you can kindle the spark, the heart, the soul, the idealism of one boy, it could be for this your soul came down into the world. Generally, generally, you should know that as limited as you think you are by different structures that you feel are rigid, with your energy, integrity, honesty, truthfulness, sense of humor, and love, and wisdom, you can infuse these boys with priceless gems of inspiration that will carry them through lives and f- through life and 5 10 15 20 years later they will know to look back at those precious moments and all of the wisdom that you gave them that's what i would tell you as a teacher a person writes to me as follows okay this is a uh, painful letter the other ones are also but different type of pain When I was a student in school, when I was a child in school, I wasn't the most liked student by my teachers. From a very young age, they thought that I was misbehaving. I wasn't. But I was a personality in my own way, and I was always disliked. My love of learning faded away. I'm talking from Kitabes, from second grade and up. I was hit... And there was a lot of verbal abuse. I was humiliated and so on. But I'm going to stick to the point. From grade two, I was dismissed. And even if I would ask a question, it was seen as chutzpah and mischievous. So I stopped asking questions and my situation deteriorated. 
I was in 8th grade, 12 years old. I decided it's a new year. I'm almost by mitzvah. I want to start my life again. I'm going to start asking questions because I want to feel like the smart, good boys in class. But I was so disliked. So when I opened my mouth to get my words out, nothing could come out because I was frightened after so many years that whatever I say, I'm going to be ridiculed. So I decided one day in the beginning of the year, I'm going to wait till my teacher finished the shear. And usually he would peer up boys for chavrusas to learn with each other. And then if we have questions, we can go over to him to ask him. So I thought that's the time I'm going to go over to him and I'm going to make him so proud because I have a good head and I had a very good question. While everyone would get a chavrusa, I was always the one left last without a chavrusa. I had to wait the longest. It really didn't feel good, trust me. But finally, I got my chavrusa and I had this great, great question. I was so excited. Wow, it's amazing. I tell my chavrusa, I have a question. What is it? He hears it. It's a great question. I tell him, I want to go ask my teacher. Remember, this is eighth grade. Since second grade, I never asked a question. I walk up to him. I take all my courage, my energy. I put all my fear behind me. One last time in my life, I'm going to transform my reputation. I walk over to him and I say, Rebbe. And he looks at me fast. I was so proud of myself. I'm going to try this one more time. I ask my question. He looks at me and he says, you're asking questions. Go ask so and so. He's a smart kid. Maybe he can answer you your question. He turns his head away and he goes to the next kid who has a smart question and answers him. His response broke me for life. Never ever did I ask a question again. Never did I even bother to ask another question in yeshiva. The pain I had had that day still hurts me. It still breaks my heart. Gosh, this is so painful to write. Wow. What do you learn from this, my friends? (laughs) What do you learn from this? You learn from this one thing. The Mishnah, the Impostic says, Hashem created the world through words. You know how you destroy the world? (laughs) Through words. You know how you create the world? Through words. Here's a boy from second grade till eighth grade was struggling with something and finally he comes for his moment of redemption and he feels rejection again. He's now 41 years old and he still walks around with that pain. Now you'll think, what's the big deal? You're happy if your teacher didn't look at you, right? But all of his apples were in this basket. So I want to tell you, I was once giving a shear here in the small shul in the morning and I said that Yiddishkeit wants us to ask questions. And somebody said, really? I said, yeah. And somebody sitting there told the following story. He was in second grade. They were learning Parsha's boy. They learned the Pasuk that Moshe said, So he raised his hand and he asked his teacher, why does it say Nelech twice? It could have said, Why does it say we're going to go, and then, again, 
So the teacher got very, very annoyed. He said, these questions you'll ask by the Manashtana on Pesach. These are some ridiculous questions. You don't ask such a question. For the next eight years in yeshiva, whenever a boy asked a stupid question, the whole class would say, Now that became the symbol of a foolish question. This man, 42 or 43 years old, never asked a question again in his life. First time he asked a question was at my shear, after years of, of prompting. Das was the fragen by the Manishtana. By the Manishtana was the fragen. Now when you're, when you're, how old are you? 26. To a 26 year old you can do it. But a, a second grader? A second grader? So I told this younger man who shared this with me, I said, call that teacher and ask that teacher if the clay yokar was an idiot. Ask him if he, the clay yokar was an idiot. So he'll go crazy, eh? He says, you told me that he was an idiot. He says, me? When did I say it? You told me Benarayni Biskanayni Nelich is the stupidest question, but the Klayoka asks it. <laughs> Klayoka asks him, Parshas boy, hello on Klayoka. Every Mikroy's doyle is printed. And even if the Klayoka wouldn't ask it, it's a good question. And even if it's a bad question, so to speak, what makes a question bad? question can't be bad. A question sometimes has an easy answer, a difficult answer, no answer. Whoever heard a thing that a child asks a question and you make fun of a child, you mock a child. And today it's not only a child. Whoever heard a 20-year-old asks a question and you mock him. And usually you mock him because you don't have an answer to his question. And it makes you uncomfortable or you're just stressed out. You're stressed out, go let out your stress somewhere. Go eat. But what do you have to let out on a person who has a question? You don't know the answer? Say you don't know, you look it up. So somebody else tells me, this is fascinating, another boy sitting at the shear, who's not 43, he's 18 or 19, and he tells me, when he was in second grade, he also asked a question. And when he finished the question, his teacher says, come with me to the principal. What did he do? He didn't think he did any crime. So he comes to the principal's office, and the teacher says over the question to the principal, and the boy is trembling, maybe he's going to be expelled. And the principal says, Ah! Ah! What a question! What a question! And he takes out a chocolate bar. And he gives him the chocolate bar for asking such a beautiful question. And the boy says, And I never stopped asking questions. I got an email a little while ago, you should just know, from Lakewood. A father tells me, he says, People like to criticize systems and schools and sometimes they have to be criticized but I want you to know what happened last June last seven in my son's school he has a school of son who has some challenges he has some learning disabilities but he got him the right help and the right tutoring and he did very well and he worked hard he's I think in fifth or sixth grade and he said the last day of school the principal of that particular yeshiva in Lakewood called in his boy and he tells his boy I wanted you should know something I have a school here that I'm responsible for. It's an elementary school from first grade to eighth grade. Then I have a high school. Another four years. Then I have a base medrash. He also has a girls' school. It's a budget of approximately $9 million a year. He says, I don't sleep. I'm in charge. I don't sleep. 
And I often ask myself, is it worth it? I want you to know, I watched you this year. Just to produce one boy like you makes this whole effort worth it. And the father tells me that what this man did for his son, no money in the world could have done for him. Could have given this boy nine million dollars. It would have not given him the same sense of dignity and empowerment that this principal gave him by doing what? By telling him in 20 seconds that this whole school was worth it because of you. It's not easy for me to read the next letter. And really, I guess, based on my own judgment, I wouldn't read it. But the person asked, I should. And I feel that no one else ever did what he asked for. I should. It's not easy to talk about. But it probably has to be, not probably, it has to be spoken about. I am in my late 30s. I'm a Hasidish young man, a Hasidic young man living in a particular community. He writes where he's living, I'm not going to say. Many people look up to me as a Lamdan, a Talmud Chachem, a Ben Torah, and a Oved Alakim. As a Torah scholar, as a teacher, I'm seen as a spiritual person. I'm not seen as a typical Jew. Okay? I'm seen as something more. I can humbly say that I am an inspiration to many, many people. They tell it to me. I also give a lot of shiurim. I teach. I have a koil. I teach bachrim. I teach balabatim. And I teach yungalite. That's all on the outside. On the inside, everything is different. My entire life, I have a terrible, terrible struggle with all issues connected to Kedusha and Tahara, and purity, and Yerushamayim. I couldn't figure out what's wrong with a nice, perfect, holy guy like me. I sit and learn, and I struggle at home, I struggle at work, I struggle in my office, I struggle in Yeshiva, I struggle at the base Medrash. I fall down sometimes into very, very filthy and unclean places. For many, many years I struggled. God had mercy on me. I found a solution. It's not a permanent one, but it's a solution. I joined recovery. I admitted powerlessness. I surrendered to God. My habit got me whipped. My life was unimaginable. My family would be destroyed. I started to work in the 12-step program. I was in recovery for months, and suddenly I started to meet people who I knew from childhood in my community, also in recovery. People who used to be friends, but we were fake friends. And now we became real friends. And as I got more sober, I discovered a lot of pain in my life and in their life. But I still did not know the true story. Until one day, I was walking with a few of these friends from the recovery community, and we passed by a certain movie theater in my community, on the side of my community. I started, I started like having a seizure. I started trembling. They didn't know what to do. Am I having a stroke? They call Hatsala. You see, I have a brilliant mind. I have a good memory. But one thing I repressed to my subconscious and I completely deleted it out of my conscious memory. And now, some 30 years later, it came back because it happened right here in this place. This is the place where a guy in my community took a young boy. 
He took me into a private room in this theater. And he did things to me that I'm not going to describe to you in detail. He abused me. He violated me. Then he took me to a big shul in my community. A beautiful big shul to a private room that he had there. He violated me again and he abused me. He took me to a hotel. He took me back to the theater. He took me back to the shul. This went on for years. I was completely confused and overwhelmed. I was full of pain. I could tell nobody, nobody in the world. The most painful fact is, one day this man, this abuser, this murderer, introduced me to one of his friends to be able to do the same. And this friend was caught by the local authorities. In the community where I lived at the time, there was something called Vad Hatsnias. The committee that was in charge for Tzniyas, everybody behaving appropriately. And they caught him, and he, they, he gave them my name. That I was, I was now 14 years old. He said, I was the person who was instigating such inappropriate behavior. The Vad Hatsnias called me in. But before they called me in, my mentor for many years told me what to do. He told me my life depends on this. He told me exactly what to say and how to say it. He promised me that if I would do it, he would give me gifts and money. I had nothing at home. My parents were and are very, very poor. And I wanted to be friends with him. At the end, he gave me nothing. The Vat called me in and they gave me this whole talk about holiness. You have to be holy. You have to be pure. You have to be innocent. You have to have Kedusha. Nothing major. And then they made me promise I would never do it again. It was the last time I heard from them again. But nothing stopped. I was continuously molested and violated. I was trying to stop, but to no avail. I am so shattered today of the pain. Not just of what he did. This Vat calls in a 14-year-old boy. They know that he's involved in something. Why don't you investigate everything? Why no support? Why no protection? Why did nobody ask me if I need any help? Why did nobody try to understand what is behind my silence? What is this denial that was going on? Today, I am crushed. I am broken. I am shattered. I tell you the story. I ask you to share it to help raise awareness with the community. I want to give three messages to people. Message number one. Stop. Stop defending perpetrators. I don't know why it is that the more from you are, the more you can get away with hurting other people. We always blame the victim and we let the perpetrators get away. Just because the perpetrator has a long beard, he puts a Rabbi Nutamstvil in, he learns Gemara every day, he's a Mahadir Mitzvah, he shakes by davening, it doesn't mean he's not a murderer. We victims don't speak. They scream and dance, Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. And then they do the worst things. And then when we speak about them, the whole community comes to their defense. Nobody knows that we are murdered victims. For the rest of our life, our souls are crushed, destroyed, obliterated. We don't have normal relationships. We don't sleep with the lights closed. We don't have dignity. We don't have self-esteem. We don't trust anybody in the world. We think about suicide and we become addicts. And some of us become addicted to drugs and other horrible, horrible things because of what was done to us. And yet, when we finally speak up, we are condemned, we're shut down, we're threatened to be expelled from the community, and everybody, including Rebbes, Rosh Hashivas, Rabbanim, side with the perpetrator, because how can such an innocent person do it? And then we're murdered a second time by all the people who come to his defense. Stop ignoring this. Stop giving them stretched out arms. My father was so uneducated about this. And this is my second point. 
Be educated about what is going on in the real world. Be there for your children. Watch signs. Educate them. Train them about these things. Don't hide your hand in sand and think that in powerful, beautiful places in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, Borough Park, Williamsburg, Kiryasyoya, Lakewood, Muncie, and all other beautiful communities, five towns, these things don't happen. They happen constantly every day, and some of us can't walk into a shul or a mikveh or keep Shabbos because of the things that happened over there because we associated with abuse. And finally, my third message is, I want you to know that every time you speak about us and our condition, you give us life. Thank you for reading about my pain and struggles and everything you do to be attentive to people like me who are in recovery but struggle every day to remain in recovery. This is a letter. I think it speaks for itself. I do have to tell you that I have received hundreds, I don't exaggerate, hundreds of letters like this. I continue to receive them from all different types of communities, from young men and from young women. Similar stories, dissimilar stories from America, from Europe, from Eretz Yisrael. And uh, I think it speaks for itself. There's not not much more for me to add, just to say that uh, people who haven't been through this don't understand how people's souls are murdered and snuffed out because of it. And when we, when we are silent, and when we allow it to happen by turning our eyes away from it, by making believe we're a little deaf, and by thinking everyone is exaggerating and making up the stories as though it's so much fun to be married, to be a Rosh Koylel, and to be an addict, and to be in a terrible, terrible situation, what we're doing is we are allowing immoral, horrible behavior to continue. There has to be a paradigm shift in our consciousness, I believe. Loisamoid aldam reyacha. Our Torah, our davening, our tzitkis, and our chumras are worthless if we don't stand up to what is critical and first and foremost. Don't stand by the blood of a child being spilled in your presence for decades. Because if somebody opens their mouth, they're threatened with shaduchim, and they're threatened with stigmas, and the family is going to be ruined, and the community will ban them and excommunicate them. And therefore, people sitting here in this room who don't have a normal night of sleep, of serenity, because of the dread and terror in their bones, because of what happened to them when they were 9, and when they were 10, when they were 11, by prominent people. And they feel that they can't speak and there's nobody to support them. My dear friends, we have to transform this. We have to change this. And I tell you and I tell all of you that you are a source of inspiration to me and to so many of us. And times have changed. I, and I know people like myself, are deeply, deeply remorseful for the years of silence, simply out of ignorance by many of us, by others, I guess, for different reasons. And what we can say is, times have changed. No more will you be rejected, and no more will you not be believed. You will be embraced, you will be cherished, you will be supported. And remember that nobody in the world 
can obliterate your flame. No abuser in the world can extinguish your light. No action in the world by any monster can destroy the chelek eleka mimal mamish at the core of your identity. Just like Hashem is indestructible, your soul is indestructible. And there's a place in you that is powerful, wholesome, confident, happy, and full of infinite possibilities. And I beg you, don't give up on yourself. It's painful. There are nightmares. There's a lot of tears to cry and a lot of memories to bring up and a lot of work to do. But never ever doubt that your wholeness and your divine core remains complete and wholesome. And I know that people like you will ultimately be a source of tremendous light and healing and hope, not only for a few people, but perhaps for hundreds and thousands of people. I am very, very stressed. (laughs) Good morning. I'm also stressed. (laughs) What am I supposed to do for you? Making... (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to America. I am very, very stressed trying to make a living. I wake up early in the morning, I have a big family, and I can't make ends meet. The work is not what kills me. The anxiety kills me, the stress. I never have a moment of serenity. I could never sit on my couch and just enjoy my children. I could never daven and learn with menucha, with tranquility. I'm always overwhelmed by anxiety. Any advice for me? There's one more problem. I have brothers-in-law. They are successful in business. They had a business together and they got into a fight. A big fight and now my two brothers-in-law don't talk to each other. So their wives don't talk to each other. So my whole family took sides. One of them decided that my father-in-law took sides with one. So he cut out my father-in-law and my mother-in-law from his life. So now half of the family doesn't speak to each other and there's a tremendous war we don't go to each other's simchis. It's horrible. It used to be a beautiful family. And now the family is split up over this money that I don't even have. <laughs> For me, he says it's a machlaikas l'shma. At least they're fighting about money. I don't even have anything. It's just, mamish, can you give me any advice? I'm going to tell you two things. I mean, there's a lot to say about this. Give a few shiurim about this. But I'm going to say two things to you. Number one, a word from the Ostrov Rebbe. And number two, a word from Reb Meir of Primishlanis, Chusam Yogan Aleinu. The Rebbe of Ostrovce was Rebbe Chiel Meir of Ostrovce, a city in Poland. He passed away, probably Tofresh Pechest, 1928. The Meir, Einei Chachamim. And uh, a Jew once came to the Ostrov Rebbe, who, by the way, fasted for 40 years. He said to somebody, if you would see what I see, you would also fast. Some say he felt the Holocaust coming, like Reb Tzaddik in the Gemara in Gittin, who fasted 40 years before Churban Bayesheni. The Ostrov Tzadeb fasted for 40 years. At night he ate a little cereal, a little uh, oatmeal, kasha. He ate a little kasha at night. Some say he fasted even Shabbos. A Jew once came to him and he said, why do you keep your store open on Shabbos? So, he tells, so the Jew tells him, you're also Mechal Shabbos. They say that you fast on Shabbos. He says, yeah, but for my Chilo Shabbos, nobody learns from me. From your Chilo Shabbos, people are going to copy you. So it's a little different. And he was a genius of a person. So somebody once came to him in Poland, Jews were poor. And he came to him about this anxiety and stress that he has with Parnassah. So the Sof Tzerebbe gave him the following illustration. 
And he said, today you could see videos, they have tremendous documentaries of what happens in, in under the waters, under the, in the seas and in the oceans, lakes and streams and canals, beaches. Uh, then it was also well known, but not like it is today, it was really well documented. He said, if you go under the water, you scuba dive, and you watch the whole mahalach of how fish behave, so some, many fish are predators, they live off eating other fish, and there's fierce competition underwater. When you look at the water, it looks very relaxed and serene. It is. But when you go underwater and you see what's happening, there's certain locations where there's a lot of heavy, heavy fighting and disputes and 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 competitions, and fish are more brilliant than many of us imagine them. What they have system, the systems that they have genetically encoded in their programs are incredible. Incredible to learn about the world of all animals on, on dry land and fish as well, amphibious creatures as well. So the Ostrov Tzerebbe said, you'll see a very fascinating phenomenon. You'll see a large fish, a predator, is chasing. It's going in a particular direction. What is it doing? It's chasing the smaller, weaker fish, to get its food in the cycle of life. And you see the direction that it's chasing the small fish in order to eat it. And then, when they catch this fish, they take it out. They expect to see that the large fish caught the small fish. They have a small, if it has a small fish in its mouth, and the tail of the small fish is inside the mouth of the larger fish, and its head is on the outside. But they always find the opposite. They always find the opposite. The face of the fish that was eaten is inside the mouth of the fish, and its tail is on the outside. What is going on? So the Asraf Tzerebbe says, the answer is, this is how nature works. The predator is chasing to catch the small fish. As he's swimming to catch the small fish, there's another fish coming in his direction. And it goes right into his mouth. It goes right into his mouth from the other direction. And that's why you see this constantly. It doesn't always happen, but it happens very often. He says, why did the Rebbeinu Shalalim create it this way? He says, because he wants to teach you how to live. This fish thinks that its food is coming from the fish it's going to catch. No! The fish it's going to catch comes straight into its mouth. So then why can't it just stay in one place and let the fish come in? doesn't work that way. This fish has to do what it has to do. It needs to pursue its goals, what we call make its hishtadlos, do its thing in order to get its food. Is that going to be its food? Maybe, yeah, often. No, nothing to do. As it's doing its thing, the fish comes in from the other way. Says that's how your perspective in life should be. Lia Kesef, Veliazov. Any businessman knows this. This fish is running and running and running. That's not necessarily the source of its food. The source of its food could be a completely different source of its food. You do what you have to do. And anxiety and stress and worry will contribute nothing to it. 
what has to come into your mouth will come into your mouth by the one who is responsible for you. And for all of creation, do it without anxiety and that itself will give you much more serenity to do what you have to do in the way you have to do it. If you can internalize this on a morning-to-morning basis, your approach in the office and in your appointments will be completely different. Don't chase people as though they're going to give you your life. And don't think if this guy didn't return your call, you lost your parnasa. Do what you have to do. Make the calls, meet the people. But this person is not going to be the one who's going to decide if you have parnasa or you don't have parnasa. And therefore, don't go into a crisis or to a depression or to a major anxiety if you don't get the right response and he rejected you and he took somebody else and he wasn't available and you missed him and you missed him again and then he takes off for the snow for three weeks and then he takes off another three weeks because of coming of snow and then it's Pesach and then it's July 4th and then it's Elul and then it's Simchas and then it's Hanukkah and he's going to get back to you after Shemitah and then you say, on Hani Bo, he was Vani Eftach Boch. Don't do Vani Eftach Boch. Do Vani Eftach Boch. One Boch, do Vani Eftach Boch. You do. You do. The fish that comes to you has nothing to do with the people you're chasing. Sometimes, yeah. So, very often not. Even if it's yeah, it's not them. That God wants to give you the Parnosa this way. When you have this equilibrium in mind, when you have this perspective in mind, everything is different. A Jew once came to the Meir Primishlana and he said that he has a store and a competitor opened up somewhere else and he's going to destroy his entire livelihood. The same story that happened with your brothers-in-law who had a store and they split up and somebody opened up another store. A similar store. And he doesn't talk to him anymore and he's in a fight with him. So the Meir Primishlana told him when a horse, I don't know if you ever noticed, but those of you who owned horses, we have a few of them here in Muncie. I don't know if he's here now, but he may even be here now. When you take your horse to drink, so the horse comes to the trough of, filled with water, or let's say to the, to the river of water, and the horse bends down to drink, and you ever saw the horse starts kicking the horse the horse starts kicking. Kicking harder and harder, the sand kicking. The Meprim Rishana said, do you know why? He said, no, I never owned a horse. So I'll tell you why. When the horse looks down into the water to take to drink, what does the horse see? What does the horse see? The horse sees another horse. In the water you see a reflection. The horse never learned about mirrors and reflections and kamayim upon him, upon him. He never learned the Pasuk in Mishle. So the horse suddenly sees another horse in my spot. I came to drink water. You had to come in my spot. So what does the horse do? The horse starts kicking the second horse to get away. Of course, the more the horse kicks, the more the horse kicks, the more murky and dirty the water gets. Until it gets so blackened with the sand, there's no reflection of the horse anymore. So he's happy, and then he starts drinking, and he's drinking mud and rocks, and, and instead of good fresh water. But he had to get rid of the horse. 
And if he stops kicking at a short at some point because he wants the cleaner water, he can't do it with tranquility because there's another horse right there in the same spot. Reb Meir said, the horse, machta parto osam. The horse is making a few mistakes. Mistake number one is deep stuff. The one who you see as your enemy is really only yourself. The one who you see as your enemy in life is only yourself. I'm going to explain. We don't hate other people. There's no such a thing. We're not jealous of other people. We're not angry at other people. It's the thoughts that we have about other people that make us jealous and angry and frustrated. You don't do anything to me. It's my thoughts about you that do everything to me. And my thoughts about you have to do with my thoughts about me. So the horse says, the maidel says, the horse sees who? It sees itself. Its enemy is itself. Mistake number two the horse makes. The more he tries to kick away the other horse, all he does is he makes his own water dirty, murky, filthy, schmutzig. Whose water is he destroying? His own water. The third mistake the horse makes is, He doesn't understand. There's a big river. There's enough water for everybody. What should I tell you? I have seen this again and again. Families get into fights over money. They stop speaking to each other. And grandchildren don't talk to each other. It's one of the most foolish decisions people can make. Somebody once said, Ah! Yidin zayna am chachem v'noven. Oibder am chachem v'noven v'ot nargahata b'sela seichel. Jews are a very intelligent people, the Torah says. If this intelligent people would only have a little seichel. I look at brothers, brothers-in-law, mechotonim, siblings, cousins, people in a community, brilliant people. Brilliant in business, lahavdil in learning, in tzedakos, so brilliant. They give the world. They support moizdes lachanant. In their own family, there's an argument, there's a debate, they lose a fight over money, even a lot of money. They lose their mind, they lose their shikoladas, they lose their serenity, they lose their hashkafa soilim, they lose faith in God, they lose faith in themselves, they lose faith in their souls, their insecurities take over, an illusionary horse takes over, and the rest of their life they're kicking. And all they accomplish is that their water becomes dirty. Families don't talk. People get sick. People get depressed. Sisters don't have relationships anymore. Cousins don't have relationships. And you look back one day, before 120 years, and you say you gave up family, you gave up priceless relationships for a couple of bucks. Even if it was a couple of bucks, and even if the guy was a thousand percent wrong, of course... And you are a thousand percent right. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I know a person. 
she was married to somebody. His father owed him $90 million. $90 million. Yet all your fathers should owe you $90 million. And they should have it too. They should have 180s, they can give you 90. He owed him $90 million. This person unfortunately passed away prematurely. He was in court with his father. Father didn't want to give him the $90 million. He was in court. He passed away prematurely. Years later, I met this woman. She was telling me the story. And I said, did you continue the court case? She said, no. I dropped it. And she doesn't have money. She really doesn't have money. I said, why'd you drop it? $90 million. She said, I had little kids to raise. I knew I have to make a choice. Either I'm going to be in court for the next 20 years. Maybe I'll make 90 million. Maybe I'll make 70 million. Maybe I'll make 20 million. Maybe he'll make a settlement for 30 million after 10 years in court. But I knew he's going to fight. I knew my father-in-law. I knew he's going to fight till the bitter end. He's going to hire every successful lawyer in the world. I had to make a choice between 90 million dollars or having a life. The day after Shiva, she dropped it. She dropped it. So I once came for a simcha to her house. I walked in. Very, very unwealthy family, physically. And I told her, look at the spiritual wealth you created. Normal house, a happy house, a serene house, seven beautiful children, an aviran, ambiance of Avas HaTorah, Avas Hashem, Avas Yisrael, family unity, camaraderie. You could have had $90 million and have nothing. Some people have everything and they have nothing. Some people have nothing and they have everything. It's a choice that you have to make, your brothers-in-law have to make. Don't think small. Don't be petty. We spoke Purim. Come Rabbi Shachtelit Abzeda. Let your largeness slaughter your smallness. Let your bigness, your Rabbi, slaughter your pettiness. Think big. Don't think small. Think long term. Zainish kin fed. Don't be a horse that spends his life kicking the water, the water that's dirty. I'll do one more letter. It's an interesting letter. Very innocent letter of a man. I worked really hard in yeshiva, learning and davening, and literally kept pushing through barrier after barrier, day and night, until I burnt out. I come from a more modern background. A full day of learning was hard for me. I persevered and I was successful. Eventually, I made it to the mirror yeshiva. And I was considered an exceptional bacher. After that, I came home. Currently, I'm a full-time rebbe. I'm 26 years old. I teach teenagers. I also do kiruv rechoikim. I also do kiruv kroivim. I also study psychology half a day. I have a Torah home, an amazing wife and son, and yet I feel my relationship with Hashem is awful. I'm never good enough. No matter whatever I do, I always feel like I should be doing more. I'm a failure. I'll tell you why. My Rabbeim in Yeshiva always spoke about the need 
of learning Torah full-time. I used to learn early morning before Shacharis for two and a half hours, but I started to get headaches. So I had to stop. It was too much for me. I'm doing my best, but I don't feel I could learn Torah all day. I need to support my family. So I'm becoming a therapist. I learn a half a day psychology. I also teach Gemara half a day. But I really don't understand what Hashem wants for me. Why can't I be the perfect Jew? Why can't I be learning Torah all day? My Yiddish guide is now a burden. It doesn't enrich my life. It seems that not everybody is supposed to be in full-time learning. The, the Torah speaks about Yisachar and Zvulun. The Gemara in Brachis, Lamedvav, seems to suggest that most people should pursue a career rather than learn all day. Rashbi could learn all day. But Harbe Yosuke Rashbi, Veloy also Biyadin, Harbe Yosuke Rabbi Shmol, Volsab and Rishmol said, Hanik Bem you should have a career. I left, felt learning, I left learning because I couldn't support me, and I felt it was too intense for me. I'm in education, but I'm still pursuing a parnasa, and I'm becoming a therapist. Can I achieve the same closeness to Hashem that somebody who learns full-time can? I was taught that I can't. I was taught that the real simcha in Yiddishkeit in this world is only if you learn Torah all day, because that's what a real Jew does. I heard in yeshiva many times that Zvulun shares the same Olam Haba like Yisachar. But Olam Haza, Yisachar has much better than Zvulun. Zvulun doesn't have an Olam Haza. He's Nebuchim Parnasa. Yisachar has an Olam Haza. Is there a heter to leave full-time learning due to it being too much? Whether financial situation or financial situation. Is it true that someone unable to be in full-time learning has lost the schus? I was made to feel, or somebody told me perhaps, that because of sins that I have done, I'm not zoicha to be in learning full day. Or I just don't have the schus and the sayata deshmaya. So I ask a question. I am so angry. Hashem made me who I am. He gave me my strength. He gave me my limitations. This seems like an unjust Judaism. How is it fear that I should miss out the best relationship with Hashem when I'm just trying my best? How is it fear that Hashem considers my Yiddishkeit second best and I am a Nebuch case? I want to tell you and conclude, I met a friend who sits and learns all day. And when I told him that I'm pursuing a job in psychology... He just gave me a look like, wow, what a loser. I really feel like a loser and a failure, and I need the direction. Wow. I get many letters like this, you should know. And I'm going to respond briefly. And I think the best way to respond is with a story. (laughs) Always the best way to respond is with a story. I'll tell you a story and I think it's going to clarify it. Since we're talking today a lot about Bochem and yeshivas and being successful or unsuccessful, there was a particular yeshiva in New York. I happen to know the yeshiva well. And there was a boy studying in that yeshiva, and he didn't have the intellectual capacity to understand the learning fast. He had a chavrusa, and the chavrusa would accomplish in an hour what took him a week, if he was honest with himself. 
and it made him terribly frustrated because he realized he's not going to get very far. So he went to one of the teachers in the yeshiva and he asked, Lama Nigara. The way he put his question was, we learn and we hope that we're going to become G'doylem, great giants. I'm never going to become one because I simply can't grasp the material fast. I sit and it, um, it's a very slow process for me. It's a very slow process for me. So this teacher told me that every gadol needs talmidim. G'doylem need k'tanim. If you're a teacher without students, you're not a teacher. If you're big and nobody is small, how could you be big? So every God will need students. So by me being a student, I allow the G'daylim to be G'daylim. Because I'm their student. So they could be big because I'm, I'm, I'm their students. So I'm also part of being a G'daylim by letting the G'daylim be a G'daylim. So I shouldn't worry. I went back to my seat and I was even more annoyed at this ridiculous answer. I don't want to be the one allowing the gadol to be a gadol because I'm a cotton. I want to be the gadol myself. So I went to another staff member in the yeshiva. And he told me, every gadol needs supporters. You need money. You can't be a gadol without money. Who's going to support the yeshiva, the family, the koilo? I'm going to be one of the supporters. And that's how the gadol can be a gadol. Here again, I didn't like it. I don't want to support. I don't want to be the money for the godl. I want the godl. I don't want them to say at the dinner, he helps the godl. I want to be the godl. I want to be the guy who walks in. I don't want to be the one that gives the money for the godl. So he went to the mashgiach. He went to the mashgiach and the mashgiach says, it's a good time. In the previous Gilgul, you did Averis. You probably sinned in the previous reincarnation. And now you're being cleansed by not being a Godel. But don't worry, next lifetime you'll be able to be a Godel. It's just this lifetime, it won't last too long. Bezim Yenashama will come down again, you'll be good. This boy was a bright kid. But not, you know, every person has their own abilities. He was, I can't tell you how turned off he was. He was not just turned off. He felt vile. He felt, this is repulsive. He felt, he just felt this is, there's something very off. And if this is Judaism, he's out. And he decided to leave Yeshiva. Told his Chavrusa, I am not part of such a system anymore. This faith is so primitive. It's so strange. It's so cultish. It's so disrespectful. And it doesn't make sense to me that this is what God wants. There's something off. I cannot be part of this religion. I'm out. Something very interesting happened. There was a Thursday night, midnight shear, that used to take place not far from this yeshiva. It was a shear that was given by somebody who I learned by for many years, Rabbi Yoel Khan. And it was a shir in Tanya. So the Chavrusa said he goes to it. And he thinks he should go to the shir and let him ask Rabbi Yoel the question. He asked three people, let him ask another person. Maybe, maybe he'll have another answer. So he went. And after the shir, he asked him the question. So Rabbi Yoel Khan says, Sagutta Shaila, Lama 
I want to be a Muslim. I want to be perfect. I want to reach Shlemus. I want to reach Godless. I want to be a Godless. And I can't. My intellectual skills don't allow me to. Good question. And the Biyayil says to him, He was very good at saying that he doesn't have an answer. That was usually his answer. Such a question, you have to ask. Rabbi Yol says, such a question is for a Rebbe. It's a big question. He says, why don't you ask the Lubavitcher Rebbe the question? So he says, Vikumich to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I have no shaykhs to him. not from a Hasidic family at all, nothing to do. Not only not Chabad, but the whole. So he says, the Rebbe answers everybody, no exception, no difference age where you come from. Write him a letter. It's hard to go. Write him a letter. Tell him everything. And he'll probably answer you. Let's see what he says. So the boy sits down and he writes a long letter to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he shares the whole story. His struggles in learning. His chavrusa learns an Amit, a blad gemara in an hour. Him, it takes an Amit gemara a week. One teacher tells him that every gadol needs ktanim. The other teacher tells him every gadol needs money, supporters. Third one tells him it's a Gilgal with Avedis. That's why he can't be a Gadl. He says, I want to be a Muslim and I want to be a Gadl. And I can't. And therefore I decided I'm not learning anymore. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote back to this boy a letter. Teenage Yeshiva Bacher. I don't know, 17, 18, 19, one of those years. He writes him back the following letter. I can't tell it to you verbatim. I heard this story from Rabbi Yoel, I think 25 or 30 years ago when I was in yeshiva. <laughs> 25, uh, 25, 26 years ago probably. I had a classmate who was having a birthday. So he made an illegal birthday party in the dormitory. And uh, Rabbi Yoel Khan doesn't know the difference of legal and illegal in yeshiva. So he invited him and he came and he fabrained with us and he told us the story. No, no, there were no cigarettes. No, no, there was potato chips and Coca-Cola. That was the <laughs> Today if you see Bachem with potato chips and Coca-Cola, it's like, wow, G'daylam. <laughs> can't ask for more. You can't ask for more. Halavai. Halavai. So he told us the story then, almost three decades ago. So I'm telling you from memory, so I can't tell it to you verbatim, but the, the, the theme I remember very clearly. The Lubavitcher Rebbe wrote to this boy a few points in his answer. I want you to listen to the answer, but also listen to the structure of how he built the answer. The Rebbe writes to him, point number one, the Mishnah says at the end of Masech Kedushin, Ani nivresi l'shamashes koini. That's the last mission of Kiddush. There's another girsim, Melechus Shloima, Ani loy nivresi, Ela l'shamashes koini. But l'nyaneinu, it's not negeya the difference. I was created to serve koini, to serve the one who created me, to serve Hashem. So the Rebbe says, you hear, you see from this Mishnah, that every person was created to serve Hashem. That's point number one. Point number two. Hashem doesn't want any two people to serve Him the same way. Vaharaya. 
He didn't create them the same way. Every person was created to serve Hashem. But no two people were created the same way. People have different backgrounds, different genetic makeups, different natures, different experiences, different gifts, different talents, different blessings, different virtues, different vices, different struggles. But they were all created that way. And therefore it means he wants every person to serve him differently. Next point, the Mishnah says at the end of Perkei Yavis, What he created, he created for Hashem. And the Gemara says in Shabbos, Nothing was created in vain. So if you were created to serve your Creator, and nothing was created in vain, and everything was created, it means that everything that exists in you was created to serve Hashem. What does this mean? That Hashem has given you the exact amount of koiches, faculties and potentials and abilities to serve Him in the way that He wants you to serve Him. And as we said, it's different than the way He wants somebody else to serve Him, because that person, He gave a different set of potentials and faculties and virtues and blessings and challenges. And what we see here from here also, He says to Him from all these Mamar Chazal is, that you were given the exact amount of faculties that you need in order to serve Him the way He wants you to serve Him. Loipachas, you weren't given less than what you need to serve Him, because if you were given less, you won't be able to fulfill your purpose. You also weren't given more, because and it's all the Shamash Eskaini and Lechvaidi, so you were given the exact amount of power, potentials, koiches, faculties, experiences, circumstances, exactly the way He wants you to serve Him throughout your entire life. Exactly nothing less, nothing missing, and nothing more. And he comes to his punchline. And when you take all your koiches and you serve Him the way He wants you to serve Him, now hear the play on words, Ein lecha shalem, ve'ein lecha gadol, you can't be more perfect and you can't be more godl. You can't be more great than this. You can't reach a higher perfection and you can't reach a higher godless. This was the answer. What does this mean, my dear friends? What does this mean? We often create a model what Judaism looks like. This is how you serve God. We create a certain model, a mold. We put you into the mold. This is how you serve God. What if you don't fill into it? Either we stretch you. You know, like in Zdoim, in the bed, right? If you didn't fit the bed. Either we stretch you, or we cut you up. If you're too big, we got to get you into the mold. We put you into the mold. This is, this is a success story. 
What if you don't fit in? So either you're a failure, like you write, or you're a nebuch case, or you're a real loser, or you fit in. What if you don't fit in? You cut yourself into pieces. What if it hurts? Okay, figure it out. Call medication, I don't know. What if you're too big? Mutilate yourself. What if you're too small? Stretch yourself. But the main thing is there's a mold. That's not Yiddishkeit. There's a name for that. Don't make molds. Don't make statues. Don't make images. That's not Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is to fulfill the mission that God wants from you in this world. And that's never two people the same. There's no such a thing as a nebach. The circumstances you have, the personality you have, the life story you have, are perfectly suited for you to be the ambassador of God. He wants you to be in this world with everything that comes in your life, including the difficulties and the challenges that you need to fight and overcome and confront and subdue and transform. So here's the deal. I like to be visual. Is that bottle full? You mind giving it to me? I just like to be visual. So I'm going to ask you a question. Where is there more water? Is there more water in this cup? Or is there more water in this bottle? Very good. Say you good. Givaldic, the yeshiva is worth it just for you. <laughs> He's right. This bottle has more water than this. And if I would have her a gallon, I don't have her a gallon, but I have her a gallon, it would be filled to here. Of course, it would have much, much more water than this cup. But even this bottle is enough. This bottle has more water than this cup. MS? But, this cup is full and fulfilled. This bottle may have more water, but it's not full, and it's not fulfilled. And that's true in life. The question in life is not how much water you have. The question in life is, is your cup full and fulfilled? Cup as in cup, and cup as in cup. That's the question. So what the Rebbe was telling this boy is, you're making yourself miserable for no reason. How do you know what Hashem wants? Maybe your Ahmed Gemara that you learn every day for an hour and you hazard it, and at the end of the week you finish one Ahmed Gemara. Maybe that is the purpose of your soul in this world and this is how you serve Him. I, the water fits your cup, but your cup is fulfilled. It's maximizing its shlichus, its mission, it's doing its job in the world. Somebody else may have better capabilities, bigger potentials. They have a whole different cheshbon, a whole different calculation. The Meshachachma, the Ersameach writes, why did Moshe have to break the luchas? The Jews don't deserve the luchas. Give it back to Hashem. What would you do with the luchas? I would hide it in a safe. You would sell it on eBay, fine. I wasn't thinking about that. Why break the luchas? So that you know what the Meshachachma says? When Moshe saw the Egeli understood that they still misunderstood Yiddishkeit. For them, 
things were holy. Moshe said, nothing is holy in Judaism. God is holy. Serving God is holy. Hashem wants the luchas. The luchas are holy. He doesn't want that it's not holy. There's nothing holy about anything. We don't worship anything. We don't worship things. We don't worship people. We don't worship objects. We don't worship behaviors. We don't worship molds. We don't worship models. We worship God who has no mold, no model, no image. If he wants me to do this, it becomes holy. Eating chazer is treif and unholy. If Yom Kippur, a Jew is starving to death and I have to give him chazer to save his life, it becomes a mitzvah. For another person, it's a sin. It becomes a mitzvah. It becomes holy. Because that's what Hashem wants. We create a certain rigid model what it looks like. You don't fit into it. You feel like a failure. Success, godless in life means doing what Hashem wants from you. You can't get more perfection. There's no, this is perfect, this is imperfect. Perfect means you're being true to your divine mission in life. Whatever that mission is. It could be you're accomplishing what your cup can accomplish. Somebody else accomplishes something else. And each one has its unique challenges and its unique milas. And this is true, the person asks about learning all day. To sit and learn Torah all day, it's And somebody who has the merit to do it, Talmud Torah, it's extraordinary. But here's a metaphor. A Jew is sitting in Kippur and Shul, with the talus over his head, with the kittel. He davens ni'ili, screams, Hashem huwa lakim seven times. And he feels such dveikas with Hashem. He says, I'm not leaving shul. Kohen Gadol is in the Kodesh HaKadoshim, in the Holy of Holies. Kohen Gadol says, I'm not going home. I should go home to my wife. Not two wives. I'm not going home. He in Kodesh HaKadoshim, I'm a chaya. I go home, I have to take out the garbage. What do you think the Kohen Gadol did? Hey, ankle. Come on, take over the Begadim and let's go. Baby is crying, the garbage. In Kaidish Akadashim, he saw the Malkabulchan, not leaving Kaidish Akadashim. He stays in Kaidish Akadashim. Yem Kippur. Yem Kippur in Kaidish Akadashim is the greatest mitzvah. Mitzvah Yem Kippur, it's an Avena. And if the Kaingal is in Kaidish Akadashim, and he hears that there's a baby who fell, and the Kaingal is also in Hatzalah usually. And he, the, ba- so the baby, needs medical help. And the Kohen Gadol says, I'm staying in Kaidish HaKadoshim. It's the biggest sin. It's the biggest Aveda. I, there's no greater dveikas and holiness in Kaidish HaKadoshim. But the question is not where there's more holiness. The question is where Hashem wants you to be. There are people Hashem wants them to sit and learn Yom Valayla. And Talmud Torah connected Kulim. It's extraordinary. If you could stay a whole year, Yom Kippur, Givaldi. But another Jew says, I'm not going home after Yom Kippur. He's a Bali. You have to go home after Yom Kippur. You have to go into the real world. Are there challenges? Of course. But every person has their shlichus with their unique, the Gemara says in Ma'it Katan, a mitzvah that can't be daftas. Ma'it Katan daftas. A mitzvah that can't be done to, through somebody else. It overrides Talmud Torah. The same Chazal. A mitzvah that can't be done through somebody else overrides Talmud Torah. Somebody needs to support his family. He has a chiyuv sheishes yomim tavoid zum mitzvah zesle. Chas v'shalom to call yourself a nebuch case. Chas v'shalom to call yourself a failure, a disappointment to Judaism. 
You have to be Kaveya Yitim Latayra whenever you have a chance to come back into Kaidish Akadashim. Go into Kaidish Akadashim. Every morning, every night, you should learn Torah Avada. But to say that the rest of your life is miserable and a failure and a waste of time, Chalila Vachas. Nesava, the Medrash says, Nesava, Kodesh Baruch Uliyas, Leidiri Betachtoinim. Hashem wants you should reveal godliness in the whole physical world. That's what you're doing. And every person has his shlichus or her mission, how they serve Hashem, how they bring godliness into the world. This one does it this way and this one does that way. There's no, there's no competition. I'm better than you. You're better than me. You're superior. There's no superior and inferior. That comes from a warped idea of Judaism. The moment you start feeling superior to other people, it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with insecurity, pompousness, arrogance, and narcissism. True Jews look at another person and they see the soul in every person and the way you look at it is if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do in life, you can't be a greater Godel. Even if you would be able to be that person, you will not be a Godel because you're faking it. You're copying somebody else. You're not being true to your own life. So therefore, I tell you, my dear friend who wrote this letter, I tell you, accept yourself and your life with serenity, with joy, with peace of mind. You're a great soul. You're a beautiful Jew. You are who you're supposed to be. You don't have to mutilate yourself. You don't have to give yourself headaches. You don't have to crush yourself. God loves you for who you are. He wants to see you happy, successful, wholesome physically, emotionally, spiritually. We serve Hashem with our true selves, with all parts of it. We show up to Hashem with Hashem with all of our parts. No need to hide anything, to run from anything. Embrace your identity with honesty, all your ups and downs. Bring it to Avoidus Hashem because that is your shlichus. That is your mission. Don't look at anybody else's cup. You could learn from other people's cups, but don't look and try to mimic other people's cups. You look at yours. I'll conclude with this vart I once shared in a few shiurim. What's the Hebrew term? Anybody knows what's the Hebrew term? The Tanachian term. The term in Tanach for Gehenim, for purgatory. Yeah, Sha'oil Tachtis. Sha'oil, the abyss, Tachtis below. The word Sha'oil comes from the same word, the same root like Sha'ul or Sha'il, which means borrowed. You know what the definition of Sha'il Tachtus is? You know the definition of Gehenim is? You live a borrowed life. You feel like you have to borrow somebody else's life. Because your life is never good enough. And the reason is Tachtus. You feel like you're on the bottom. The first opportunity to get out of Sha'il Tachtus is when you realize your life is not borrowed. Your life is infinite. Your life is divine. Embrace it with Simcha. Embrace it with Ava. Embrace it with Menucha. And remember that every moment of your existence you have the opportunity to connect it with infinity. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. How are we, Muslims, I'm a Abdashem, is that enough? Kick my friends a good dollar.
Because that's the root of Hashem. Avada. As Hashem will Okay. But not only that, I guess, I guess, you mean Rabunam. Right. So, on the other hand, you, you see that, you see all this status. So, who says it? So, so, so who do you... Who, I mean, our life is a stira, not not because, because 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 the push of the man should the push of the cash. And 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 but the definition of a godl is not a man who 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 is not a not a man who is not a not a man who is not is not a man who 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 is not a not not we don't have to be in denial, that's it. So the halach is in Shulchan Aruch. Arav is not aggressive in Shulchan Aruch. What means Tmimizdik? Tmimizdik means naive. Tmimizdik means sincere. Tmimizdik means not cynical. Tmimizdik is sincere. Arantlich, erlich. Not naive, not an idiot, that's not my music. Yes, it's the MS, all of the MS. It's true. But you don't have to And usually they're not in those positions. Okay. So the Rebbein Shalom made a system... Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdef. Holoich, Acha, Bezdin, Yafe, Zog, the Gemara. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdef, you don't have to look at it. And you have to look at it. And is that a gekomdig daar? Wat wilt u? Daar heb je toch echt geholpen? Ik kom toch? Ik kom toch? Wat heet men een andere? Wat zag ik? Wat is niet? Is it after going to say and fragging say? What was fragged about me? No, 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 no. I fragged as 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 as. The Rebbeinu made a system in the world that that the mashpiim and the real the guys of firmus, whichever way you go, is is not addressed. Listen, it's a complicated shaila. Yes, me, yes, yeah, you know, sir. So the mention was wasting his besser. So that he knows she needs boy. It can't be that mention was too and was a tat that get on with Zay. Zay trachtenest. So that mention was wasting his was tutsich with the Jugend. Fine mention, but Zay wasting it. It's also a hard thing. Not. It's not even a sack of dinner. I 
Ikif von Yiddishkeit auf sein Emes. Epis ist nicht Emes, it's not going to work. Tmimis meint nicht Checker. Tmimis meint Ehrlichkeit, nicht Checker. Tmimis doesn't mean I'm in denial. He's short and I say he's tall. He's fat and I say he's skinny. Ich kann tamchen an Scheiter. Tmimis meint nicht sein an Idiot. Sein an Scheiter. Mein nicht Tmimis. Es meint Tippschuss. As long as they could stay that way, if they're happy, everybody's happy. But a man, a young man, comes to that was experience. That he's the only one who's wrong and everybody is right. That people are blind. And sometimes people are in denial, and people don't know, and people have agendas. We mention Abin Yitzharis, the greatest and the best Abin Yitzharis, and I'm over in Zenichshul. The Gemara zokt in Sanhedrin. The Gemara zokt in Sanhedrin. The Kohen Gadol and the Melech have been ishgetard zayin in the Vad was his machul type stuff zayin a ibiyar. The Melech for us, well, every la ibiyar because he pays his soldiers by the year. The rights in Chadashim he saves money. Kohen Gadol. He wants Yom Kippur to be earlier. Why? The mikvus Yom Kippur is on Zion Hase because it's still summer. So a koyin gadol Yom Kippur tracht begin a hase mikveh. A gaiter einen kodesh kodesh me tracht begin a hase mikveh tracht. But I say so to the Gemara. And b'meila you can't trust him for Ibud Hashana. And he bleibt a koyin gadol. In under ah, I understand. So Zion subconscious, but it shows. What a some see us. I want a hot mikveh. I don't want a cold mikveh. How many degrees do you think is the difference? Two degrees. Huh? Zestach. Zestach. I can't turn head in, yeah. Is mezetach a bit in a kuda? As a kleinikai? Yeah. Is it can't say a grosser das? But as aim at epis for chatten, my mishpoche, my aid, my kehila, my geld, my das. Binich alul. Auf Paschen nicht kedeboi, der Rebbe steht hascheuchet ja aber und in Gemarin Ksuvis ist da ein ganzer Blatt wegen Tanoim und Amiroim, was haben gesagt, also ich bin Passel, für den Teure, Passelin und Ladine, für was? Und das mir geholfen, also ich geholfen, also ich Tanoim und Amiroim. No, so you see, they didn't say, was heißt, ich bin ein Talmud Chachem. I could make, I could be subconsciously, because then I knew for the Sheikh, but I don't have to be able to do it. I don't have to be able to do it. I don't have to be able to do it. I don't have to be able to do But And nobody could be smarter than Shulchan Aruch. And the Shulchan the Kohen Gadol is always Kohen Gadol. So he means a man. The Bein Abichai says, We have said, Yeah? They want to in our father wasn't part of Kairach. Moshe says, now you bribed me. Your father was on my team. Sorry, I'm out. 
I don't have an opinion. I'm not part of this. Moshe Rabbeinu, Nachfetzik Yar, Come Navi Kamoshe, Pel Paadabeboy. Abe Matem Gizokt, my father was on your team. That's it. Ver, a per viber. Big deal. And Tatuk Ver on my team. It's 40 years later. Kaira Cheshev Fashmundin, Fetzik Yar Friya. Fetzik Yar, Gamaisa. 930 Yar. Moshe Gizokt, Ich bin am Meshuchet. Does that mean the Emesdika? Abena Bechaya. Abena Bechaya. The Rebbe is a of Yedin Einem, a Selech Arav. Yedin Einem, a fellow of the God of Shabbat Gedolim. And what's the system of the Moistas? It's not Heine because the system, every system, right? Every system, every system, every system, every system, every system, Time about slachem of flaga. Yeah, slacher abba. Time brother is echta. Ah, okay. Shekoyach vapurim. Because when Gantz labedek, you already landed. You left. Kaidush hakadoshim. A pity you had to land. Mind the man as a man. put him. Heim banach gedenkte at euchnest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But this is a chayev finish. Avada. Avada le besume bepordia. Yeah. 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 Shalom Aleichem. How are you? You came put him to my house, but somebody mixed into the conversation with a big bang, yeah. Okay. Okay. But I see that he likes you. I see that he likes you. Yeah, yeah, when he screams, it means he likes you. Right? Okay, very good, we can talk. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. Yeah. Last days, when you started taking questions and answering it on the after a few times, you had a discussion with a couple of people. They got very insistent to see the rebels, see Mark and this and that. So yeah, very little ishmak to the things. So now, you want to see how it's going. I tell you, you disappointed me. You went completely 360 degrees. Such a schmuck. Taking out the questions and answering with such a nice, good perspective. We all know it hurts. We all went through it. But the, the answer, like he would answer to us, like we are asking the questions, it's interesting to see. I didn't understand what? That you reverse the answers. Last year was nothing to see the rappers in the Rabunam. It, it, it was nice. It was funny. Everybody agreed with it. But the tips not the minute year. The, it didn't match. But this year, you, you uh, really brought some energy to it. I see. The, the shear is much, it's different. It's not I hear you. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for the feedback. 
Is there a way to generate the sense of self and feeling good about yourself besides for therapy? That I've been pushing off for a while. But in terms of building that from a terror perspective, what is there a way to... Because in my head, I know the ideas of how to value what, I, what I'm worth and what things that I do, etc. But I, I just never But in reality, I don't feel because of my upbringing or whatever. Uh, very self Is there a way to generate more of this idea that the revolution I think when you say brachas in the morning and you say a lekaina shamash and a santabi tahirahi and you say all the brachas and everything and bechal during davening like avas oila mahaftanu or avarabe whatever the nusach is to really meditate, to take time and meditate and reflect in a very sincere way on the words and their meaning. Hashem, the neshama that you gave into me is pure. Tahira means pure and also means light. In Zayar, Tahira means light. Tahira is light. It's full of light. It's part of your light. You really loved us. And to really reflect on the fact that your soul is a piece of Hashem, and loves you, and nothing could tarnish it. And even if we make mistakes, nothing can destroy that core self. I think that's a beginning. And also to have somebody to speak to. To be a therapist, to be a selecharav, a good friend, a good mentor. If you want to be a therapist, I'm a therapist. I don't think the mitzvah is a therapist. You don't have to be afraid of therapy either. If it's a good therapist, some of them are very good, some of them are not. The main thing is to get a competent one. First test. Huh? I'm caught in a situation right now between my wife and my brother. In terms of going to my parents for love to say that. You need probably more details. And is there like an outlook? Either be that my brother not me or my wife. Your wife comes first. So you have to avoid it. Maybe buy him a gift, write him a letter. Don't don't let it become machlaikas. Maybe a letter with a gift or something. Don't let it uh, spiral. Nip it in the bud. Make sure I spoke about it tonight. Chas <laughs> Write him a letter. Write him a letter. Buy him a gift. Whatever it is. Whatever it takes. Maybe first days, last days, whatever. You'll figure it out.
Dann hat er gesagt, dass er von sich aufhört, aber anders hat er nicht von sich aufhört. Ich sehe, das hat magisch gewesen, gewisse Jahre. Man kriegt doch keine Dinge, was man kriegt, sich mal gescheit. Ich habe keinen nicht gesehen. Magisch gewesen. In Jahren von Pnimi ist eben magisch gewesen, aber es ist doch kein Machleikes. Es ist doch kein Schumminien, was Chazal sagen, ist schön, und sagen, nein, ich sehe, das ist auch verkehrt. Es ist doch eine Sache. Ich weiß, es ist eine Sache. Nein, das steht schon immer vor. Also, Gott kann einmal sein, als er Marschall. Also, wir haben Weiser, Babachana, zu diesen Sachen. Also, was? Das ist doch das ist doch This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.